Hello, it's Nick, back once again to talk about all things toy. This is the fourth part of six, and the first few episodes of this uh, kind of lengthy retelling we've discussed a number of topics, namely the initial cause of the cattle raid, the boyhood deeds of an arrogant brat, and then we went over some of the details and context behind a few of the other key characters that help kind of round everything out. That shows once again that labelling things good or evil could be all about perspective. Next up though, it's episode 21, Cahoolin. It's thirteen and three quarters. To learn of the past, answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery, so I grab this podcast and I learn at last the monsters are ever in history. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, anyone who grew up in the eighties or nineties, that tagline is probably going to be quite familiar. And it alludes to us paying a visit to Coo's uh, teenage life. Now, as you've heard in the previous three pods, he was no normal child. I mean, considering that, like as a five-year-old, he beat up fifty older kids without breaking sweat, and like one punched a grown man to death for waking him up. Like he killed a ferocious beast with only a ball, and he raised the village to the ground because, well. He felt like it. I mean, it's not a massive leap, knowing that, to think that there may be some growing pains as he kind of stretches out into his more formative years. And to exacerbate this, his days have not gone unnoticed to court, and expectations are high, not least from himself. The chat is that if he was made from nectar, he would eat his own limbs. So grab a jar, strap in, and let's get cracking. As a quick recap, the last we heard of Koo was that he was being bathed in three vats of water to cool his blood rage. After being shamed into, into submission at the sight of numerous bear bunch and boobs bounding towards him. That is generally regarded as his like, his like swift passage into manhood, even though he's only seven. It's a bit sly that he didn't get the intense bouts of acne. Nor the awkwardness or clumsiness or even that kind of drawn out process with the voice breaking. Now he went straight to like teenage heartthrob and it was most definitely causing a stir at Eamon Maha. The women... Well, they were starting to take notice, they're kind of admiring glances, possibly lingering just a tad too long on his kind of developing frame. Too long in the view of their wary husbands, anyway. These, these husbands, by the way, they, they aren't wee weeds. They are grown men, heroes of war and action, with honour and justice. They're kind of go-to virtues. Yeah, they were proper jealous of this young, this young strapping sapling and his, his hogging of the precious limelight. So much so that they called an EGM and decided that this One Direction wannabe needed to be married off ASAP. Now, as you know, Koo isn't the kind of guy you can just walk up to and say, I mate, you're just too handsome and dangerous as a bachelor, so, you know, we need to get you hitched immediately. Because, well, it'd probably prove everyone's assumptions right and slaughter the entire court, which kind of makes you think how delightful it must be living, living in such close proximity to the on-ticking time bomb, doesn't it? But these Ulster men, they're not all brawn. Some, incredibly, could actually think too. So they decided to focus on the prophecy of a short life. Remember that was the trade-off to his Mr. Worldwide reputation, as foretold by Cathba. Playing his, his vastly inflated ego, they pressed upon him his need to produce an heir, someone to carry on his genes, his legacy, his what's the point in life if it isn't legacy? And he lapped it up. On that very day, nine riders were dispatched to scar every nook and cranny of Ireland. A whole year they hunted, hunted for a maiden that could handle Ulster's prima donna. But each returned alone. Mission failed. The crazy thing is they needn't have bothered horses. As Koo, I mean who else, found his own perfect match. And no, not online as his derogar these days. But in a lug lug lugger. Which sounds like a Ricky Martin song, it's quite hard to say. But it means the gardens of Lou. And Lou was only one of three options to be Koo's dad. So she kind of lived at the bottom of his dad's garden. It was a bit weird. But she was called Emer, daughter of Foro. Before the riders left, Koo had instructed them that he would only marry someone 
his equal in age and looks. And he's only seven or eight, so I mean, that's a bit creepy, but ignoring that, he kind of had a thing for Amor's six tremendous talents that of beauty, voice, sweet speech, wisdom, charity, and my personal favourite, needlework. Oft as a young man did I stare at my window at night, longing for a maiden who could work a hem or darn my precious socks. Alas, though, I was not so fortunate as young Koo, but as Koo would soon discover, just because he wanted her doesn't mean that she wanted him. And it is precisely here that we see a small chink in Koo's armour. That's glorious. You know when you're watching those American shows and the kind of good looking quarterback always gets the head cheerleader. Yeah, and you just think, you know, ah, he's a bit dumb, isn't he? And if he didn't have that kind of sport and talent, she wouldn't even look twice at him. And then she goes and falls for the personality of the geek. It's a wee bit like that. Except there's no geek this time. He'd get murdered, you know. But it's similar. Because when it comes to his game, Koo is clearly lacking. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, he's only a junior. So we're going to forgive him. But it's quite nice to see his, his, like his fragility. Even if it's merely temporary. If a little cringing just as he starts his wooing campaign by immediately playing his trump card watch. Oh, it's an amateur mistake, I'm sure we'll all agree. The thing is, he's done a little stalking, and he knows about her six particular talents, and he sets out to prove that he is superior. So she receives a full, in-depth PowerPoint presentation of his perfection, including his skills in warfare, language, dance, athletics, and so on, ad nauseum. He clearly expects her to fall at his feet right there and then, to beg him to be so gracious as to even give a little thought towards their union. But instead she just looks at him plainly and says, Is that all? Which is uh, not too far away the dreaded is it in yet. He is aghast, truly shocked, and his recovery epitomises this as he fumbles through his memory banks for some some additional yet kind of ultimately minor accomplishments. He's given her everything all at once, and he's nothing left in reserve. At this stage he's almost staring past him. Aloof, disinterested, looking more bored than ever. And he panics, blurting out that she has fantastic breasts and asks for a buck. OMG, as the kids would say. Hi. Embarrassing. But incredibly, incredulously, it worked. And they both get naked and jump into bed. If you've lost any respect for the girl, don't. Because she's playing him. Effortlessly. And recovers her standing after the date by calling him sexually inadequate. The equivalent of, I've had better. She's dampening his ego. She's showing herself to be shrewder than him, evident again by her reaction to when he later proposes. She casually mentions that she couldn't marry before her older sister does, and then adds that a challenge may sway her to him, and Koo loves a challenge. So he takes a Hollywood pause, turns to peruse the land before him, and then, with one eye flicking to her whilst holding his arm outstretched, he says, That's a fair country, and in it I will plant my spear. Oh, that's crass innuendo. It makes me feel a bit soiled reading it out loud. But Emer, again, easily betters him. A retort laced with bedevilment. She says, No man will take this fair country until he has done the feet of the salmon leap carrying twice his weight in gold and struck down their groups of nine men with a single stroke, leaving a man of each nine unharmed. Right, so, is that crystal clear? We'll just check on it anyway. If you boil it down, what she's saying is she ain't getting none of this until you kill lots of men, spare my brothers and rob my dad, all whilst being able to jump real high. Also, I think she'd kind of forgotten that he'd actually just finished plowing her land. But maybe she was really, really pushing the sexually inadequate thing. Who knows? Anyway, apart from the fact that her sister needed married off, there was another, more sinister strand of this story. Her dad, Fergal. 
You see, Coo hadn't played it right. He'd rolled up the house, blasting the baits, arm hanging out the window of the chariot and just honked the horse. Eimear had scarpered and told her dad not to wait up. And this pain Fergal, he didn't like it. Didn't like it one bit. He saw Coo as, as a little unhinged, calling him the madman of Emmon. He was worried that one day Coo might come home from a hard day slaying and realise, hmm, that dishwasher hasn't been loaded. And here, why isn't my dinner in the cauldron? And maybe he'd decide to take it out in his little lemur. And he couldn't allow that. I haven't mentioned it yet, but Fergal was known as Fergal the Cunning, which is a direct way of saying he was a sneaky bastard. I mean, how many people have you heard of described as cunning and thought, aye, he sounds like a dead-on guy, aye? None. Absolutely none. So as befits his name, at a particularly Larry Royal day, and I'm sure they all get Larry, he asked a question, just loud enough for the right ears to hear, about how a warrior moved from wannabe to world champ. Just what did they need to do to be recognised as a top dog? There was a usual chat about nature, nurture, speed for skill, etc. But then, but then Fergal kind of asked about training. And to a man, they said that undoubtedly all the best warriors train under Skahatch of the Scottish Isles. She was the gold standard. Fergal was all, who? Oh, never heard of her, but yeah, and tells me, tell me some more. The usual suspects stood up to have their say, telling their tales of skill and wit, and eventually it was mentioned that most of the men that attend her training camps never return home. Now, it's not because they've fallen in love with the scenery or the skank. It's not the dreaded Northern Irish brain drain either. No, it's because they die there, usually in horrific circumstances. Fergal, eyebrows raised in feigned surprise, asked if the great Cahill in the train there, suggesting that Con should be so proud, so proud that he was one of the few to return. But I'm almost embarrassed Conch went there. No, he hasn't, but, uh, but we shall rectify that immediately. Great idea, Fergal, old mate. Here, take another line for being such a sound dude, and I'll get the drinks in. So before he knows it, Coo is, well, he's shuffling along in a lengthy security queue at Belfast International Airport, gobsmacked at how it can take so many people so long to scan so few bags. He'd been dropped off by Emer, and in their long kiss goodbye, she had declared her fidelity. I'll always be true to you, my love. To which Coo repeated her, Word for word, give her the wink and the gun and a reassuring ass pat to send her on her way. Now, he's not alone in the queue. Colonel Carnage has come along for the ride and he's a potential cause for some security delays as he may or may not have carried some decapitated heads in his hand luggage, which I can assure you is a big no-no, even in Belfast. After some kerfuffle and a few backhanders, they board the flight and are met on the other side by their tour guide, Domo. No doubts fueled by a few beers in the way, Koo gets a little randy and takes a tour of Domo's daughter, who is described as being, politely, rather hideous. So the less said about that, the better, especially to Emer. But the duo train pretty hard and pass all the pre-scahatched tests. Domo gives them a map and drops them off at the ferry, their passage to an eerie land, now known as the Isle of Skye. One of the islands that form like the, the Inner Hebrides in the Western Scotland. And from there they are forced to orienteer by themselves to the dreaded Dunscave, the Fortress of Shadow. I will I mean it's never going to be called the Castle of Carnations, is it? Or the House of Honey Blossom. Dark and shady names are essential for providing just the right mood for training killers. And Scotch is not short of well-financed punters looking to hone their skills. So much so that when they eventually arrive, the castle is queued out around the block, 
Hordes upon hordes of men are standing around, giving off about the first trial, that of actually getting into the bloody castle itself. I mean, there's no Hogwarts Express for these guys, like, no, they need to cross the Pupil's Bridge. And that might seem like a like an inauspicious name, but it's actually a sadistic seesaw of blood-stained, razor-sharp daggers poking out at every possible angle. They've seen these two parties arrive with their with their deep culty accents. Must have acted as like a little bit of a spur for some of the more local folk. As a few of them, you know, they get kind of motivated to have a go at crossing, fail, which usually means death or at the very least a heavy maiming. And I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear that coup crossed the bridge in oh his very first attempt, using his god-given salmon leap to kind of like just you know bound across to the castle yard. No doubt he stood safely at the far end, clapping and cheering on everyone else, or possibly baiting and pointing at all the losers losing limbs as they, they attempted to replicate his success. He wasn't alone for long, though, was his good old travel buddy himself. Also made it across, and the two crazy cats shared high fives and fist bumps as they sniggered the mountain pile of disfigured and dead dropouts. But, I mean, even for the most, like, bloodthirsty of men, surely this constant carnage can, you know, probably get a bit seamy. So the laughs kind of dried up and the two men began, began to feel a little jaded from their travels. But Scatch, she was also teaching patience and made, made these two newest recruits wait until dawn before permitting entry. As the portcullis lifted and the inner castle came into view, they were greeted by a servant called Uyach and shown to their lodgings. Ku took this as, as a bit of a sign that she was maybe after some, and thus bedded and boned his new guide, again forgetting about his future bride. However, in what could possibly be interpreted as hubris, he somehow hurt Uyachi's finger during a presumably sordid act, and she yelled out in pain, putting a big burly warrior named Cover Croyf in red alert. Cover charged up the stairs into Uyachi's private quarters and tussled Baku. It kind of you know, met every thrust of his sword by the nonchalant parry until he got bored and resorted to type by lobbing Kosher's head clean off. I'll take a quick breath here to confirm what you may or not be thinking. And that's it. I don't know if I like you. He just seems a bit OTT with his head chopping off antics. Hey, you forgot to wash the car. Heads off. Forgot to hoover the stairs. Heads off. Left empty wrappers in the quality street box. Heads fucking off, mate. And this was just in his first day of being there. What a prick. But it seems that I may be alone, as Uyach was actually Skahatch's daughter, and she defended his actions. But it gets even stranger when you find that Dakover was head of Skahatch's personal bodyguard, and, this is a big bloody hand by the way, and also Uyach's actual husband. These people, eh? But far from freaking out, they actually rewarded him. As in parallel to the story of of the Hound, like, who actually replaces Cover as the chief bodyguard and protector, and also moved in with the man's newly made widow. What the hell's going on there, eh? Anyway, you may have noticed that Scatch is a chick, or a female if the word chick offends anyone. And also, there's a load of powerful ladies in the town. There's Emer, the Morrigan, Maha, Maeve, Scatch, Uyach, etc. Lots of them. And the Iron Age Irish, they're so well advanced with girl rights, weren't they? And the cool thing is that it's not to pacify any kind of PC propaganda brigade. The Irish missed, like, they weren't out to appease anybody. The chicks just got good jobs and starring roles because they deserved it. Which is a nice twist, isn't it? Fucking meritocracy of sorts. People getting jobs and placements because of the value they can bring to the role. That's pretty cool, eh? And so when somebody opened up a rival dojo just down the road, in essence, uh, a Cobra Kai to Scott is Miyagi-Do. 
it should come as no surprise that it's yet another lady. She's called Aifa. And, yeah, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a surprise in the fact that she's actually Sketch's evil twin sister. <sighs> Training killers that strike first, strike hard. No mercy. <gasps> Yes, there was a long, hard season of training. A lot of back chat, a lot of bitching between the rival gyms, and a lot more of Coo forgetting about Emer. Well, after all that comes the season finale, the All-Valley Championship, and the two dojos go at it all day long, with the main event of the evening to be between... <sighs> Coo and Aoife, yeah! But late in the day scandal, Scott, she doesn't want Coo involved, so instead of asking him to fight someone else... She goes all Hannibal on PA and drugs the fool before tackling her twin herself. And the sisters are having a right old ding dong, you know, the usual still crashing and clanging constantly. And Aoife seems to be just ahead in the judges' scorecards. But Koo is stirring. Scott's obviously underestimated his kind of ungodly powers of recovery. And he's able to arise from his retinal and just sleep in record time. And he jumps straight into the scrap. Killing Aoife's three sons. Now... They hadn't been mentioned yet, so presumably they were just having a bit of popcorn and watching the fight when he jumps in and stabs them all. He then goes after Aoife. Good time and a scars was just about to get beat as she's gone down with a pulled hammy. Misogyny and, and vanity fuels his belief that he will dispatch Aoife no sweat. But he actually finds her to be quite, quite the opponent. She's smart, strong, swift, and she even shatters his sword, landing a blow which puts him right in his arse. As she moves in for the final devastating attack, Kui has this flashback to what Skahatch had told him one night during Pillow Talk. As yeah, he was obviously sleeping with her too, just in case I didn't make that clear. But she had mentioned that above all, above her sons, above her land, above her martial art, she loved her chariots and her horses. Nothing compared. And as she looms over him, blade glinting in the sun, face contorted in effort and rage, Victory within her grasp. Koo shouts, Look, oh look, Aoife's charioteer and her two horses and chariot fall into the sea and they're all dead. Again, it's almost embarrassing, isn't it? But it gets worse, as Aoife actually looks. Yeah, she turns her head and drops her sword in horror, giving Koo the split second he needs to lunge and oddly grab her by the breast, sling her over his shoulder and carry her to his side of the bridge. There... In front of Scotch's cheering, cheering army of disciples, he power slams her into the dirt and presses a naked sword to her throat, which is a direct quote and may or may not be innuendo, but is definitely an Iron Age equivalent to rubbing a magic lamp. Why? Because she grants him three wishes, provided, of course, he can say them in one breath, which he does because, you know, he's just awesome, like, isn't he? The first wish, though, it's oddly considerate. As he asks for hostages for Scotch, so Aoife can't attack her again. The second, he resorts to type, goes a bit rapey as he asks for the company of her in her bed that night. And remember, she's at knife point, in front of a hostile army. Not to mention that he's already had her twin sister and niece. But then he moves on to the third wish. Which is a son. Aye, a son. Doesn't ask for much, does he? And it's a bit strange, though, how he chooses Aoife over Scotch, isn't it? You know, that's like choosing Johnny Lawrence over Danny Lorizzo. John Grace over Mr. Miyagi. It's a bit strange. Anyway, a few months later, when Aoife was starting to show the uh, the less the less amenable signs of pregnancy, 
two scarpers for home, leaving behind a red ruby ring for his child and making her promise that when the boy is big enough for the ring to be worn, he is to be sent to Ireland and will be called Conla. He said Conla must reveal his name to no one, must make way to no one and must refuse no one combat. These are three gash, by the way, and we know what that means, don't we? But I'm not too sure how Koo knows it's a boy. There's a 50-50 chance, isn't it? Which kind of always grinds my gears when people go, ah, oh, it's a girl. And when it comes out a boy, they go, oh, so close. Close? I mean, I'll explain it again. It's a 50-50. That's two options. I mean, two. You can't get much closer than either right or the only other option, can you? <sighs> As we said in home, training completing to paraphrase Kinsella, he can juggle apples with never more than one in his palm can do the thunder feet, the feats of the sword edge and slope shield, feats of the javelin and rope, the body feet, the feet of the cat and heroic salmon leap, the pole throw and the leap over a poison stroke, the noble chariot fighter's crouch, the guy balls you, the part of spade, the chariot wheel throw, shield rimming, sounds a bit dodgy, breath feet, snapping mouth and hero scream, stroke of precision, the stunning shot and the cry stroke, stepping on a lance in flight and straight erect on its point, the sickle chariot, and the trussing of a warrior on the point of spears. I don't really know what many of those are, but they sound bloody awesome, don't they? Though, to be honest, I'd definitely have asked for an adoken as well, but maybe I'm just greedy. And before he left, Scotch gives him a present, the Guy Bulger, which was mentioned in his uh, lengthy list of feats there. It's a spear with points within a point, so that when the tip enters the flesh, it opens up the revealed spikes that shoot off and snake into the body, causing all sorts of horrific internal damage to the... Uh, unlucky bastard or bitch that it enters. The cool thing is that it's a one-off. Liberation. As me youngest says when mocking American YouTubers. You'd think, you'd think if you could invent that you'd fire it off the Dyson, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, the orders would be flooding and you'd be a belter, but no, it's made solely for a coup and it makes men fear him further as it's a total game changer. Bringing a gun to a knife fight, that kind of thing. Skahatch also prophesizes that he will one day fight, fight alone for the province of Ulster, and that he will love and be loved by lots of women, but also confirmed his short life. She also honoured him by calling the local mountain range the Black Coolin in his honour. Well, that's a wee bit of a fib because I don't really know who named him. Probably the tourist board, to be honest. But it's Judy, our so-called hero. So let's spread the rumour that it was her and see if it sticks. Also, I've recently been told there's a saying on the Isle of Skye that something is as big as Cúhlin. Now, this could be uh, spread by Scatch or her daughter or Dono's daughter or Aoife or whatever to possibly, to possibly compete with Ferg of the Wild Horse. But again, it's difficult to decipher the exact origins of that saying, so spiff away if you will. Now, not many of his actions, well, if any, since he left to be Scotch, his apprentice, have persuaded me to think any more of him. And as the dad of two girls, I sympathise more with Fergal's plight. As a reminder, Fergal is Emer's dad, and understandably he's a tad concerned for his daughter possibly getting hitched to the madman of a man. Fergal was obviously hoping Coo would die by Scotch's hand, but to cover all bases like the cunning usually do, he was trying to marry her off to someone else. Anyone else? And more recently, Lugade. King of Monster, who is well up for it until he learns to whom she is betrothed. In that instant, there's no debate, no mulling it over, he shits it, deciding that he'd prefer to keep his head on his shoulders and calls the whole thing off. But what if Emer? Does she not get a say? Well, yeah, of course she does. And to be fair to her, there's no indication that she's up for being shopped around. She is said to have been totally monogamous to Koo, obviously unaware that he'd been acting like he was on an 18 to 30s holiday. Not that he was old enough, to be fair. 
But with all his promiscuity, I honestly think that's what gives him the moniker of the Hound of Ulster. But again, that's pure conjecture. And again, I ain't a scholar, so what do I know? Anyway, upon his return home, he doesn't pass go, he doesn't collect 300, but he heads immediately to Fergal's house. It even seems like he may have matured a little, as he actually gets out of the chariot this time, walks up to the front door and knocks. Ah, but when Fergal answers, he says, Ah, 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 I want the wife, please. To which the unamused Fergal shouts, Nah, flicks him the bird and slams the door in his face, intent on keeping his golden child himself. Q does not take this well. He busts out his trademark salmon leaf, jumps over the castle walls, and in a scene straight out of Monty Python in the Holy Grail, he just runs amok, stabbing and slaying all that crosses path. All that is, except Emer's brothers, as requested in her initial challenge, and also her terrified da. Though that's not by choice. Fergal, fearful of dying at the hands of the madman, he took his chances by jumping from the castle ramparts and landed splat on the concrete floor below. Or at least that's what Koo says. Koo then jumps off the same roof himself, carrying Emer, her foster sister, both their weight in gold, and runs off into the sunset, cackling all the way home to Eamon Maha, with both his bride and pride intact, beaming from ear to ear, telling anyone who'll listen about his exploits when tradition of all things threatens to piss on his chips. The Ula Havin, in true Braveheart style, Prima Nocte, meaning the Lord of Lud, I'll conch himself gets a go to all women on their wedding night, just to remind us all how much of a ball bag he is again. As if you'd even forget. However, as is fast becoming tradition, Koo gets special treatment, as he's no longer just a prodigiously talented fighter with anger issues, but now he's a highly trained, elite, scat-hatch boot camp surviving, dad-in-law slaying, breast-grabbing, prodigiously talented fighter with anger issues. So a compromise is quickly agreed, and it suits all parties. Emer will sleep a conch, but that other creep Kathba and Koo's BFF Ferdida will also be in the bed to ensure there's no hanky-panky and presumably no sleep either. But it means no one loses face. Tradition is intact. And the next day Conch pays the wedding diary, as obviously Fergal is dead. And the next day Conch pays the wedding diary. And the next day Conch pays the wedding diary, making Koo and Emer very rich. And they both live happily ever after. Ah, you know, that's bullshit, don't you? And we'll jump forward about eight or so years here and talk of a blonde, bushy-haired youth of no more than seven appearing near Ulster shore. Birds start dropping from the sky, some stunned by the stones launched by the young man, but others, when he's bored of throwing rocks at the defenceless local wildlife, well, they get knocked out of the air by his voice. Even in mythical, mystical Ireland, this is people worried, and King Con says, do you gain paraphrase Kinsella? Well, I pity the country that boy is heading for, and I don't know what island he comes from, but their grown men can grind us into dust if one of their younger boys can do that. Someone go out and meet him. Do not let that little shit ashore. But get ashore he does, and he finds his path blocked by Conal Kernach, whose first act is to ask him his name. The boy pleads the fifth, refusing to declare your name is seen as provocation in Ulster. In front of Conal stood a child, and he didn't want to fight him. But announcing your name and purpose gets you protection from the king. Refusing to do so gets you a kicking. Which, as we know, Conal Kernach is only too happy to dish out. But this time the big dog gets a lick of his own medicine. As the boy is so fast and strong that he disarms and embarrasses Conal without even really breaking sweat. Forcing the Ulsterman to turn tail and flee. It's time for Coo to enter stage right. Emer, 
he always seems to be the smartest person in the room, unless it comes to Ku's infidelities, that is, immediately knows who the boy is, and she begged Ku not to go, but stopped just short of name-checking the kid. So there was Ku, approaching this little boy, putting on his most manly voice and asking him his name. Again, the boy will not tell him, but responds by saying, Quote, if I were not under a command, there is no man in the world to whom I would sooner tell it than to yourself, for I love your face. This takes Koo a little off guard, as I'm sure it would take anyone off guard, and he, except Koo kind of fawns a little at the compliment before recovering his composure and getting ready to scrap. He's a little wary of the kid as he knows he's just bested Kono and pleads with him to reveal his identity so he can be spared. Koo believes himself to be the greatest ever at anything, remember? But as the situation escalates and they come to blows, the boy easily parries and deflects every single attack thrown his way, much to Ku's dismay, and they both end up wading deep into the water and wrestling. Incredibly, the young boy is getting the upper hand and he actually scalps Ku, taking off his French, and Ku bloody loved that French. And it sent the growing crowd into absolute raptures, a frenzy descending upon them. They scream for blood, but will they get it? And it makes you think, you know, what are these guys about? I mean, it's a 17-year-old against a 7-year-old. And these people want gory violence. And it looks like it's going to go that way as Ku is getting angry. And everyone knows what happens when he gets angry. It's a bloody miracle that it hadn't happened already as not only has this boy managed to push him back but he's totally taken the piss by dunking Ku's head under the waves. Twice. Ku is in serious need of saving face. So he delves deep into his soul and the ironically titled Hero Hillow appears above his head. The fury is on. He calls for his spear, the guy bulls you, and the boy does similar, calling for his secret weapon, and it arrives first, but he hesitates. He knows the man whom he faces, but Ku does not dither, and plunges his spear deep into the young boy's breast, puncturing his left lung, and no doubt all other vital organs. Ku wheels off, saluting the crowd, accepting their adulation, sliding through the waves on his knees, pretending he was in control the whole time. Just a game, just a show for my people, he keeps saying to anyone he can hear. As he passes the boy in yet another victory lap, he sees his hands raised too, and on it is a glinting red ruby ring. Yeah, it was Conla, his son, just in case you hadn't figured that out. Some stories tell of Conla being sent by Aoife to kill Ku, and that it was she that put the gesh on him. Angry that her love sweat was still sticky upon him whilst he was marrying Emer, which is just a bit gross. Others say the coup knew it was Connor but killed him anyway, as honour made it so. A quote from Kinsella of words from coup to Emer state, No matter who he is, wife, I must kill him for the honour of Ulster. None that I could find explicitly explain why Emer didn't speak up over Connor's identity. Was she happy for him to die? A bastard child of a love affair? Her past actions at ordering Ku to kill so many of her household guard would kind of suggest she's deaf got a dark side. But allowing Ku to commit infanticide? Surely that's too much, isn't it? Isn't it? The questions remain. Would the death not put more pressure on Emer to sire a replacement? Assuming he has no other kids thus far. And it would be a bloody miracle if he didn't. Why would either parent put such a gash in Conla, knowing, knowing that they would surely lead to his demise? Also, why would Ku kill him if he asked for him in the first place? And should he not have been expecting him soon, as he asked for him to be sent at that age? Surely when he saw a seven-year-old overwhelm a hero such as Conal, alarm bells should have been ringing and people should have been saying, Hey, who was the last seven-year-old hero we knew of? Then, when he parried in the all of Ku's tricks and moves, should not have clicked that he was trained that way by Skahatch and Aoife. The answers may lie in the fact that Ku still feels he owes something to Conch, saying, quote, 
the blood of Connor's body will flush my king with power. Which I'm not sure I get unless the power is pride for coup. As you think that Conch being Conch would have seen, would have seen Kono's potential, that he was even greater than Ku, as he was his son, and that of Aoife, and trained by her and her sister since birth. Either way, you could cover it by saying that Ku's just a bit of a dick, which he is. Of that, I mean, I'm certain. But I do feel a bit sorry for him. Once the realisation hits him, he crashes into the waves to scoop up his poor child. Little, young Conla. He cradles him in his arms, carrying him out of the sea, and lays him on the shore, in front of the watching men of Ulster. My son, men of Ulster, here you are. Alas, alas, said the whole of Ulster at once, which I assume is a generalisation. But you can understand their lament. Lying before them was a future hero of Ulster, dead at their feet, the heir to coup. He may not have time to make another, as remember his life was short, pressure to produce all laid in Emer. Or, well, any of his horse, to be fair. Connell was not yet dead, though. In true literary fashion, he had final words to his father, declaring that together they could, quote, have carried the flags of Ulster to Rome and beyond. Now there's an Orangeman's wet dream, isn't it? Traditional roots of the Vatican. But there's more Catholic connotations here, as it's probably another example of the influence and spread of Christianity in Ireland at the time. Uh, a, bit, a bit of a rewrite in history, so to speak. I'm not real uh, a little sick of people doing that, eh? Good, however, is soon under greater control, rather than godly as he is grief-stricken, and in fear of him going full rage and wiping Ulster from the map, Conch orders Cathbury to cast a spell of confusion. It leads to coup thinking the tide is attacking him, so he spends the next three long days in the sea hacking, hacking at the waves, until he drops down with exhaustion and washes up on the shore. Can you imagine how wrinkly his fingers would have been after three days? I go mad after about ten minutes in the bath, like, jeez. Anyway, the province itself plunges into mourning for Connor. Kids cry in the streets, parents sacrifice random animals, and for three days no calves were allowed to go to their mothers for milk. Such a moving tribute for Connor, eh? <laughs> but forget the shit joke there, as there are bigger issues on the horizon, such as the invasion of the armies from the rest of Ireland, which we'll eventually get back to next week. And by the way, just to in the end here, a big shout out to Magoo, whose wife just had a kid. Fair play to you. Alright. Until then. Later. Uh yeah, here's some shit Irish music as well. Bye-bye.